if we can offer people the foods they know and love, but without having to rely on industrial animal agriculture as the model of production, we can solve a whole bunch of problems in a short period of time. So cellular agriculture, instead of using plants to replicate the experience of meat, it's about producing actual meat and other animal products by feeding cells nutrients. Meat's just a combination of cells, and those cells can be grown on the skeletal system of an animal like we currently do. And that process is quite resource intensive. It presents public health risks. Some people are concerned about the welfare of the animals in those systems. Or you could actually feed a small sample of the same cells nutrients directly and allow that process to take place without the need to breed, feed, raise, and slaughter billions of animals. That's Thomas King. CEO of Food Frontier. And this is episode 115 of the Proof Podcast. Hey friends, happy new year. Welcome to the first episode of 2021. For new listeners, my name is Simon Hill. I'm the host of this show, The Plant Proof Podcast. It's a pleasure to be with you. Hopefully, following today's episode, we can make this a regular thing going forward. By way of background, I am a qualified physiotherapist and nutritionist, and I post nutrition tips to plantproof.com and on social media, mainly Instagram under the account plantproof, to help people become more conscious about their food choices and upgrade their health. And then on this show, each week, I sit down with a different guest with guests that range from professional athletes to medical doctors, nutritionists, dietitians, neurologists, cardiologists, environmental scientists, animal activists, and the people who have overcome chronic illness. Today's episode is with Thomas King, the CEO and founder of Food Frontier, a not-for-profit organization that is helping grow the plant-based alternatives and cellular agriculture industries here in Australia. Super impressive individual, previous Young Australian of the Year. If you're a regular listener, you may recall he was on the show about two years ago. And this conversation, uh, recorded prior to Christmas, is really a continuation of that earlier conversation with updates on how this market has progressed over the past two years. It's a super, super interesting area. One I also talked about with Bruce Friedrich in a previous episode that really stands to totally change our food system, improve human health, help our planet heal, and is of course much better for our animal friends. Before we jump into the episode, I wanted to share a relatively new study that came out late 2020, around August. And given today's topic is partly on plant-based meat alternatives, I thought this particular study was very fitting. This study was published in the Journal of American Clinical Nutrition. It is a randomized controlled crossover trial called the Meat Eating Alternative Trial swap meat. And this was conducted by Christopher Gardner and Justin Sonnenberg and colleagues out of Stanford. These are very, very experienced researchers who 
have a history of designing very eloquent studies. In this trial, they wanted to see if eating plant-based meat, these meat alternatives, affected cardiovascular risk factors differently to eating organic meat products. And by organic meat products, I should say, derived from animals. To measure this, they created two phases, a plant-based meat alternative phase and an organic animal meat phase, both lasting eight weeks. Each subject did both phases, but the order in which they did was randomized. So they had some people doing the plant diet first and then the animal and vice versa. That's why it's called a a crossover trial. That means subjects got to do both diets. Subjects were provided with the food and and asked to consume at least two or more servings per day. For the plant-based phase, the foods provided were burgers, sausages, chicken strips, etc. from Beyond Meat, a a plant-based meat company. And for the animal phase, the food was provided by an organic meat company in San Francisco and included 80% lean mints and burgers and sausages, etc. The biggest differences between the nutritional properties of the food was that the animal products, even though they were organic, were still much higher in saturated fat and, of course, contained zero fiber. Fiber is only found in plants. Whereas the plant-based products, of course, were much lower in saturated fat and contained good amounts of fiber. So what happened? Well, in the plant-based phase, participants lost more weight and lowered their LDL cholesterol. We would expect this given that the plant-based foods were lower in saturated fat, saturated fat raises cholesterol, and they're also higher in fiber, and fiber lowers our cholesterol, and it also helps keep us satiated, keeps us full via multiple mechanisms, which I explain in my book. But the most important message here and the the bottom line is that although plant-based meat alternatives are not going to be as good as eating whole plant foods, such as black beans or tempeh, for example. They are still better than the common animal products that most people would be using them to replace in their diet. And you know, for this reason, I see a big role for these plant-based alternatives. They move people in the right direction. They help people get used to higher fiber intake before making the leap to eating entirely or mostly whole foods. And they are good social foods. Now, I eat them here and there and I don't feel guilty whatsoever. While they're not perfect, they're better in comparison to what most people eat. They're better for the planet and they're, of course, better for the animals. And to top it off, they're almost indistinguishable now in terms of taste and I'm sure over the next five to ten years, the taste and the nutritional profile of these foods will only continue to improve. Now, to be fair, some may point to who funded this study, and I think this is always important to talk about no matter whether a study has a conclusion that fits your worldview or your beliefs. It's always important to look at the other side. How will other people interpret this study? Along with multiple other grants, a research grant was provided for this study by Beyond Meat, which is a plant-based meat company. While 
sometimes people will automatically assume industry-funded research is inherently biased. It's not. It certainly raises alarm bells and it should make us be more sceptical. If you think about it, though, it's entirely normal for a company to want to see science on their foods if they truly believe there are better few options. What this study did to help remove a conflict of interest is really what I believe all studies should do at a bare minimum. They handed their data over to a third party to analyze. And importantly, the third party was blinded to the participants. That means when they got the data and were looking at weight and cholesterol, et cetera, et cetera, they had no idea what the participants were eating. Anyway, that's the swap meat trial. I thought that was interesting. I'll put a link to the study in the show notes for anyone else who thought it was interesting and and perhaps wants to have a deeper read. All right, let's get into this episode, shall we? This is Thomas King, CEO and founder of Food Frontier. See you on the other side. One of the best ways to track our health is to regularly get blood work done so we can take a peek under the hood and get a feel for the state of our cardiometabolic and hormonal health. You can do this with your local doctor or you can use a service like Inside Tracker. The nice thing about Inside Tracker is they make the process super convenient. You can organize their phlebotomist, a person who draws blood, to come to your house or office to do the blood draw. A few days later, your results show up in the Inside Tracker app, and they provide lifestyle recommendations based on whether a particular test is suboptimal, normal, or optimal. I've checked Inside Tracker's lifestyle recommendations, specifically the exercise and nutrition ones, and I can confidently say they are evidence-based and in line with the information shared in both my book and on this show. They even added ApoB to their ultimate plan, based on recommendation from myself and others. It's also nice to have all of your lab results readily accessible in one mobile app, making it easy to pull up past results and see trends and patterns over time. Get 20% off the entire Inside Tracker store. To get started, go to insidetracker.com forward slash Simon for this exclusive offer. That's insidetracker.com forward slash Simon. If you're a long-time listener of this show, you'll be well aware of the scientific evidence that supports a high-fiber, plant-rich diet for good long-term health. And while I certainly believe in a food-first approach, there is a role for supplements to help optimize the intake of specific nutrients and address any nutritional gaps. Enter Emil. Emil is a plant-based wellness company with a series of products to help you optimize your plant-based diet. Two of my favorite products being the Essential 8 multivitamin and the Optimal Omega Plus. The Essential 8 contains 8 key nutrients that plant-based eaters often fall short in. And the Optimal Omega Plus contains a direct source of DHA and EPA omega-3s, same as in fish, but from algae. In fact, taking Optimal Omega Plus daily 
which contains 750 milligrams of EPA and DHA, is equivalent to eating two to three pieces of fatty fish per week, in line with the nutrition recommendations globally. To get your Essential 8 and Optimal Omega Plus, head to theproof.com forward slash friends and follow the link which will get you an extra 10% off your first order. That's theproof.com forward slash friends. Thomas King. Simon Hill. Welcome back. <laughs> Thanks for having me. <laughs> two years, two plus years since episode 22, flown. A lot happens in two years, particularly in the world of cellular agriculture and plant-based protein, I imagine. A hundred percent. A lot has, has changed, plenty of developments to discuss. Now, listeners can, can jump back to 20, episode 22 if they want the sort of full backstory, which, correct me if I'm wrong, a major sort of milestone in your life was the palm oil website. Is that right? That's how I started out in the social environmental impact space when I was uh, 13 uh, and have done a lot since then. Yeah, well, don't discount that. I feel like that, go back and listen to that. I was, I was certainly inspired by that. I think you shared a story around you set up a website and it became the number one ranking website. Is that right? That just came back to me now. I can remember that vividly. Um, so you got, you got inspired about... The, the damage that was being done. Yeah, I, um, I, was, I was pretty shocked at the time and that sort of led me on a journey of learning a lot more about the major issues facing our world and the very interconnected factors underpinning them. Um, so food systems has always been a focus for me, but I've also done stuff in climate and poverty alleviation and other fields as well. And here you are today heading up Food Frontier. Give me a little rundown if I was in the elevator with you for 30 seconds. How would you sort of describe what you guys are doing? So we're Australia and New Zealand's think tank for alternative proteins, which is cellular agriculture and plant proteins. And there's two parts to what we do. We uh, undertake research and reports and, and engage the media to illuminate opportunities in alternative proteins. And the second part is supporting business leaders and policymakers to navigate and pursue those opportunities with the ultimate goal of growing the uh, development, supply, and consumption of alternatives to conventional meat. And the reports, I must say, I've got one here, which we will probably delve into, meet the alternative, are incredible, very high quality. Thank you. They're very, very impressive. I'll put a link into the show notes of, of any of the reports that we sort of speak to. I think splitting this conversation up into the, the two sort of different aspects of alternatives uh, as you said, plant-based meat and cellular agriculture might be an easy way for us to go through what's changed since 2018. Sounds good. Why don't we start with plant-based meat, given that you recently published a report looking at the, the healthfulness of plant-based meats. And I think this is particularly interesting for this show. We focus a lot on, on nutrition and a lot of the listeners are making changes to their diet and wanting to upgrade their health. Tell me about the report, why you did it and, and sort of where you landed with regards to your findings. Yeah, so this was our major report for 2020. And what we'd observed is as the market for meat alternatives uh, started growing, there was sort of this commentary in the media around or questioning whether these options are healthy. Um, dietitians and nutritionists being called upon 
to help answer that question without necessarily having the knowledge of what these foods are, what they contain, and how they stack up from a health standpoint alongside the products to which they're an alternative. And I think that's a really important consideration when having this discussion. Asking are they healthy isn't particularly effective um, with any food um, as opposed to asking are they healthier? You know, what's the context in which we're asking that question? And for plant-based meats, it's as an alternative to bacon and burgers and nuggets and schnitzels. Most common meats that are being consumed. Most common processed meats. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. So, um, you know, crumbed poultry and uh, burgers and sausages, etc., which aren't health foods. <laughs> um, and so we wanted to ask, are they healthier? And, and that's why we set out um, to do this study where we looked at almost 100 plant-based meats across the market, compared them with the products to which they're alternatives, at burger for burger, sausages for sausage. We partnered with uh, Terry Lichtenstein, who's a leading accredited practicing dietitian, who was the co-author on the report, and basically found that across uh, all of the, the, the six categories we looked at, plant-based meats are comparable or superior um, nutritionally uh, uh, to their conventional equivalents. They had better health star ratings in five out of six categories. And the sixth one, they had the same health star rating, which was for mince. Which looks at sort of positive and negative attributes of yeah. the food, like saturated fat, sugar, and then positive points for like fiber Absolutely. And, stuff. And, and And some of those positives that, that came out that were abundantly clear is that plant-based meats, obviously, unlike conventional meat, offer fiber, which is a really important nutrient, um, also considerably lower saturated fat on average. And sodium was an interesting one because that's often one that gets criticized when it comes to this category, you know, oh, well, these products are high in sodium. On average, they're about the same, if not less, across those categories we looked at when compared with those conventional meat equivalents, um, which also have a decent amount of sodium. And so that was sort of the centerpiece of the report and we, we launched it in the media and generated a, a bunch of buzz and conversation um, and, and also presented it to a number of different health authorities and, and the retailers, et cetera. We also looked at factors beyond nutrition because, of course, there's more to a, to a food than just nutrition when we're talking about its health impacts and touched on uh, the topic of processing. We looked at additives uh, and food safety as well. So processing, I think some people may be thinking, well, how processed is a hamburger compared to, say, a plant-based burger? Uh, where, where did you sort of land on that in terms of the classification of how processed they are? Just like the products to which they're an alternative, plant-based meats are processed foods. That's the first thing to acknowledge. Then it's a matter of delving into the, 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 that conversation and actually asking what are the concerns people have when we're talking about processed foods? And on the surface, the major concerns are things like a undesirable nutritional profile. So, you know, low protein, low fiber, high saturated fat, high sugar, high salt. That's not necessarily, as our report found, the overall picture of, of the plant-based meat category. In fact, it's fairly far from it. And so that doesn't really apply. Um, then there's concerns like, well, processed foods disrupt healthy meal patterns. You know, it leads to more snacking, um, et cetera. Again, plant-based meats, when you consider the context in which they're consumed, 
um, is a is a meal. They're not snacks, and and they're not sweets and or confectionery. And so that doesn't necessarily uh, apply. And so we unpack those various concerns and arguments in the report and also acknowledge that a lot of more research is needed in the space. It, it's still an emerging field in terms of the NOVA classification and, and, and trying to understand the impacts of food processing. I think that's an important point, though, that the word processing carries with it a sort of an element of stigma, right? 100%. But just because a food is processed does not inherently make it unhealthy. It depends on that formulation. And, and, and as you say, a lot of these products are high in fiber, which is one of the first things when, when you sort of think about ultra-processed foods being heavy in someone's diet, you think, well, they're consuming a lot of foods that are low in fiber because you know, traditionally a lot of ultra-processed foods are stripped of their vitamins and minerals and their fiber. They're, they're different to these, these plant-based alternatives in many ways. I do see people particularly on social media, putting up the label of, say, like a hamburger and a, a plant-based meat. Have you seen that? Yeah. And sort of highlighting that there's a long list of ingredients. Was that something that you looked at? Is that something that people uh, fear when they see that? Yeah, we looked at additives, added, added ingredients, and, and found that plant-based meats have about the same number on average to conventional meats and in the same categories. Often it's the same kinds of additives because to create a, a burger or a hot dog or a schnitzel, regardless of whether it's made from chicken or beef or um, plants, you know, to create that format and that texture that people enjoy, you often need the same kinds of, of additional ingredients. Um, that said, there's potential for plant-based meat producers to uh, have cleaner labels um, by innovating, by trying different new novel ingredients and by us innovating further up in the supply chain at the agricultural end of the spectrum to actually produce crops that are more optimised for these kinds of applications. Because the most, you know, the, the soy and the pea and the, you know, the plant proteins, the legumes we're growing aren't necessarily designed or optimised for plant-based meats at this point in time. The, the, the other thing I just want to quickly touch on is, you know, if you're in a position to eat a whole foods, plant-centric diet, go for it. That is, yeah, that should be the goal for all of us. Um, but the reality is about a third of the meat that Aussies eat is processed. And so what we tried to acknowledge with the report is, you know, these alternatives uh, provide a, a, a really useful stepping stone. We're shifting people in the right direction. Absolutely. And also, I can put my hand up, I eat a predominantly whole food diet, but when I'm out at restaurants, it's nice to, to see these things on the menu yeah. from a, a sort of social point of view. And then it creates an overall dietary pattern that is easier for people to sustain. Yes. And, and rather than sort of reverting back to, to older habits. And, and, and I think it's important when we're talking about dietary change in any context to acknowledge that it's not necessarily health or sustainability or ethics that are leading people's food choices. It's taste, price and convenience first and foremost for most people. So if you can offer them the familiarity and the convenience of the meals they know and love and have grown up with, um, it, it, it's an easier proposition for a lot of people to take steps towards eating more plant-based foods and it opens them up to, to new ways of eating. I mean, I, I find it firsthand with my close group of friends. I've frequently used plant-based meats when they've come around for dinner and it's been an experience that has just opened their eyes up to not having to 
to sacrifice flavor. Yeah. And in many cases has been that stepping stone where, you know, weeks later they're sending me a photo of some type of Buddha bowl or something else that they're trying because yeah. they they had that nice introduction. Yeah. So I think there is a role for these products. In some people's diets, it will be a larger role than, than others, yeah. as you say. Absolutely. Some of the best stories I've heard are of people's mums trying to cook plant-based versions of their famous recipes for them. You know, Italian mums making a lasagna, but now they've got a, a plant-based mince that performs really well and in the same way, but that their son or daughter is able to eat now that they follow a plant-based diet. You mentioned that the sort of scope for plant proteins could grow, or I think you alluded to that in terms of what will be available from the top down. And I think Bruce Frederick on a previous episode spoke about how currently there is sort of a little bit of a limited amount of plant proteins that producers can work with and then not enough diversity. I believe he mentioned that there could be thousands of plant proteins eventually that could be used. One of the the sort of comments that I see from from people who perhaps do not side with the plant-based meat industry is that they are reliant on soy and reliant on pea and and that these monocrops are damaging our environment. Is that something that Food Frontier has looked into in terms of communication around that subject? Yeah, there's a lot in there. We're sort of sort of entering some um, complex territory. And I guess the the first thing to acknowledge is that our food system is 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 wrought with problems, um, and that this approach of producing food relying on very few sources and and crops in this case is problematic. Um, but when compared to other protein options, the environmental footprint is still vastly smaller. Um, you know, there have been meta-analyses done by University of Oxford, for example, you know, 15,000 commercially viable farms have sourced data from 119 countries and you know, meat and other animal products end up at the top end of the spectrum and plant proteins end up at the bottom end in terms of their emissions and their footprint. Um, and so we sort of asked as an organisation, within the, the system we have, how can we uh, diversify protein production? How can we move towards those options that have fewer environmental impacts and fewer public health risks. It doesn't mean it's perfect. Um, and there are people doing really great work in the permaculture space and the organic space and um, ag tech to try and reduce the need for, you know, uh, herbicides, pesticides, et cetera. Um, and that's really important work. It's, it, it's not an area we focus on, um, but it's important to acknowledge there's no silver bullet solution to our food system challenges. We need a cross-section of different efforts. And I think the often the sort of pointing the finger at consumers who are buying plant-based meats and saying that they're buying into this monocropping is forgetting that the majority of monocrops actually are fed into the livestock industry, particularly soy. A hell of a lot of them are. <laughs> As you say, this is a very, it's a very complex topic, the, the food industry and where our food comes from. Um, but the, all of the large reports and, and the one that you just mentioned then make it very clear from an individual footprint and from a, an overall food system, the, the more plant protein that we can grow that ends up being consumed directly by a human, the better. Right. And I'm very glad that David Attenborough endorsed that in his latest uh, documentary on Netflix. Absolutely. You watched that? Yes. 
yeah, of course. Um, it's 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 really exciting from my perspective that that somebody um, of his stature, who has he was so respected worldwide, um, and has observed how our planet has changed and society has changed over his nine decades, is 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 you know bold enough to be able to call this out um, and point to the fact that not only do we need massive reform and transformation in our energy sector, the energy that, that, that powers our houses and our cars, but we need transformation in our food sector, the energy that powers us. Um, and unless we address that, we're not going to, to, to prevent the irreversible ecological damage that he was warning of. My hope is that because he is so well-respected, a lot of people join this conversation who, mm. who may have not otherwise. And, you know, I think he made it very, very clear how much damage we've done in such a short period of time. Absolutely. And it will increase if we continue to rely on these models we traditionally have, models of production. Um, we're talking about a 70% estimated increase in demand for meat and, and protein by mid-century. We do not have the planetary resources to, to sustain that, relying on livestock, you know, solely. So it is inevitable. I mean, it, 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 the data is crystal clear on the fact that we need new methods of protein production in order to feed a growing population and an increasingly protein-hungry population. Um, and they're the sorts of conversations we have with industry, with ag- agriculture and with government to illuminate the opportunities that presents and how what are currently considered alternative proteins can be uh, can it offer economic value, agricultural opportunities, and greater choice for consumers. Yeah, because I can. If you've tuned in to the many episodes I've done focusing on cardiovascular disease, the leading cause of death globally you'll be well aware that ApoB is a better biomarker for measuring our risk of having a heart attack or stroke than LDL cholesterol. The only problem is that not every pathology lab is set up to test ApoB levels. Fortunately, this has now been made easier by Inside Tracker, a leading health and wellness company founded in 2009 by experts in aging, genetics, and biometric data from Harvard, MIT, and Tufts that provides lifestyle advice based on your blood test results. With the new edition of ApoB, InsideTracker's ultimate plan now analyzes 44 biomarkers, including metabolic health markers like HbA1c, triglycerides, and blood glucose, important nutrients like vitamin D and iron, as well as hormones like cortisol, sex hormone binding globulin, free testosterone, and total testosterone, before giving you science-backed lifestyle advice to optimize your health and longevity. Your data tells the story of your health. With Inside Tracker, get to know your story and create a lifestyle that delivers better health for longer. Get 20% off the entire Inside Tracker store. To get started and redeem this offer, go to insidetracker.com forward slash Simon. That's insidetracker.com forward slash Simon. Hey friends, the scientific evidence on lifestyle habits that lead to longevity is clear. Now it's time to put this knowledge into action. 
I'm excited to announce the Living Proof Longevity Challenge, a 12-week program to build evidence-based lifestyle habits to optimize longevity. My team and I have transformed over hundreds of hours of conversations with experts on aging, nutrition, and exercise into a life-changing 12-week program that will challenge you to develop habits that lead to a longer, better life. This is a unique opportunity to gather health data about yourself that has the potential to change your life for the better. You'll start by testing 10 longevity biomarkers that tell the truth about where your longevity stands right now, today. Following that, you'll get a personalized longevity score to guide your 12 weeks of habit building that will boost your score and improve your biomarkers for the better. After the challenge, you'll retest your 10 biomarkers and see the proof of how powerful these science-backed habits really are. Head over to theproof.com forward slash living proof to download your zero cost copy of the Living Proof Longevity Challenge today. That's theproof.com forward slash living proof. Look forward to joining you on this journey. I mean, I, I've been reading, I think it might have been a month or so ago, and, and this is always in the headlines, and, and I think you've spoken about it before here in Australia, but I was reading some EU headlines and it was around the government looking at can you or can you not call plant-based meat meat or plant-based sausage sausage uh, or plant-based milk milk. And, I mean, they came to a decision that it was okay for the on the meat side but the, the news wasn't so as good for the, the dairy side in terms of what you can and can, cannot call plant-based milk over there. And this sort of brings me to the Australian market. What's happening here and are you feeling a, a level of resistance from the more conventional industries as the, the sort of plant-based alternative market grows? Yeah, there's been quite a varied response across the agriculture sector. I mean, for any of your listeners who are based here and, and maybe even those overseas um, will know that Australia is a big agricultural producer. Um, we, you know, we're, we're almost the size of continental USA and half of that landmass is used for livestock production. Uh, we export about 70 to 80% of that and these industries are, are very established and longstanding and, um, and employ a lot of people. And so, understandably, those that are that are that are part of those those incumbent industries um, are, in in some instances, concerned about the emergence of new protein sectors. Part of our role is helping them understand the complementary nature of alternative proteins and how they can work alongside traditional food and ag sectors to feed a, a growing population. Um, and and the conversation broadly has evolved quite. Uh, far from where it was, say, 18 or 24 months ago um, in terms of the kind of response publicly that you would hear from uh, the sector and certain voices within the sector. And I'm proud to say that, that Food Frontier has played a, a key role in that. You know, by undertaking the economic research we did last year with Deloitte, for example, to actually put figures around the size of the prize and the economic and the jobs opportunities that presents and the agricultural opportunities of increasing plant protein demand, it's informed these conversations with evidence and data that wasn't previously there. So it's not just an emotional, fear-driven response. Um, that said, uh, you know, we have seen efforts from, from some in industry and in politics to try and restrict the use of terminology 
used in this industry um, uh, due to that 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 fear, um, and it's unfortunate because it distracts from the bigger opportunity and the important conversations we could be having at a national level about how Australia stands to benefit from growing demand for new protein sources. Um, so, yeah, Food Frontier has engaged over the last couple of years on the labelling conversation. Um, the, 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 the previous Minister for Agriculture last year tried to push for restrictions at the, at the government level and the Ministerial Forum on Food Regulation said no. Uh, and this, this year uh, the meat and dairy sectors are pushing again um, and the, the Minister has engaged with us and we're involved in a working group process uh, with meat and dairy and some of those other key representatives to deep dive on this issue and actually determine whether there's a problem because the reason being put forward is one of consumer confusion. You know, the claim that people are buying soy milk or plant-based burgers not knowing what it is, you know, and that these products are masquerading as conventional wheat and dairy, which there's no evidence to support. In fact, we did nationally representative consumer research with Coma Brunton. Um, they're a leading market research agency last year that proved the opposite. People know what they're buying. In fact, the plant-based nature of these products is usually the selling point because uh, there's a very large portion of the population that are on a meat reduction journey or dairy you know, reduction journey. Um, and so, look, it's a, it's a, it's a thinly-veiled attempt to prevent competition and it's unfortunate. Yeah, I think here in Australia anyway, most supermarkets, if you walk into Woolworths or you walk into Coles, they have a separate section right. which very clearly at the top says plant-based, as you say, and usually right. has some some leaves or something green around it. Yeah. And, and the use of those terms like burger or sausage or milk or yogurt is to speak to the utility and the functionality of the product. Um, and they're always coupled with that qualifier, plant-based burger, veggie sausage, soy milk, um, it says what the origin is and what the contents is and then it says what the format is and people know what to do with that. They know what to, you know, do with a burger or some mints. Uh, whereas if those terms were taken away from manufacturers, they have to come up with all sorts of strange, you know, contrived terminology that will likely generate more confusion within the marketplace, uh, which is the opposite of, of, of what we're aiming for. So based on on the conversations that you've had, and your sort of inside experience on this, are you hopeful that in, in February we'll, we'll be in the same position where things won't change? Absolutely, yeah. So, so February is when the sort of recommendations of this working group that we're part of, that the minister established, um, will, will, are expected to be um, completed. And it's, it's, <laughs> this has already failed twice at the regulatory level. Um, it, it, it is... Um, uh, pretty clear there isn't evidence to support the claims being made. And so, uh, look, if there are outliers within this category that are towing the line in how they're advertising their products, they should reconsider that. But the vast majority of plant-based companies um, make it very clear what their products are and what they're made of. And um, the, the good thing is there is a lot of uh, encouraging, uh, constructive engagement from parts of the agriculture sector. Uh, we're really pleased at Food Frontier to have started an initiative called the Future of Protein Forum with the National Farmers Federation, uh, which is a space to bring new and traditional protein industries together to discuss these things and to scope out what the opportunities are and 
and how we can work more collaboratively and constructively to realize them. You mentioned just before that there are an increasing number of people in Australia who are reducing their meat consumption. Since we spoke in, in 2018, what's that looking like? And I guess how's that sort of impacting the overall size of plant-based meat here in Australia? So the rates of vegetarians and vegans in Australia hasn't changed much over the last few years. It's, it, you know, if we look at research from Roy Morgan and Euromonitor and Mintel uh, and the Coma Brunton study that we engaged on last year, it's around about 10% of the population are in that sort of mostly entirely meat-free bucket. Where we have seen growth is in meat reducers and flexitarians. So meat eaters who are either uh, eating less meat than they previously were, which is a, what we classify as a meat reducer, or who are eating about one to four meat meals a week. That's a flexitarian in, based on the study we did. Uh, so quite a, a plant-centric uh, focus. 32% of the population fall into that flexitarian slash meat reducer category and about 10% vegetarian vegans. That's 42% of Aussies that are eating less or no meat. And what we've seen in the marketplace in terms of how that translates commercially is about a doubling in plant-based meat offerings in the last sort of 18 months or so. Um, I remember in get, you know, we work with the retailers, you know, Coles and Woolworths and I remember um, when Woolworths put the first plant-based meat product in the meat section. They were the first retailer in the country to ever do that. Um, And they were putting their neck on the line. And the product ended up selling out in the majority of stores nationwide within like 72 hours. Was that Beyond Burger or who did they? No, that was, it was called uh, Funky Fields Mints. Funky Fields Mints, I remember that. Yeah. Yeah. Um, A product from Europe. And that was sort of a wake-up call for the retail sector of, Wow, there's a there's a there's a demand here we're not meeting, and so since then we've seen, as you mentioned before, the integration of plant based products into the meat aisle with the the, the dedicated section, and uh, locally we've seen a growth in the industry. So, what's some of the best sort of success stories locally in that space that we've seen? Oh, there's so many. Um, you know, we're one of the higher profile companies that's come about is called V2 Food. That's a collaboration between Jack Cowan, the billionaire owner of Hungry Jacks and CSIRO, um, and they launched as the Rebel Whopper in Hungry Jacks uh, nationally and have ended up in retail with a burger and, and mints as well. Um, you've got companies like Fable, which is more of a whole foods type approach, so it's 62% shiitake mushroom, and it's sort of a braised beef style product that's available in Woolworths. Um, Very good. I've had that before. Yeah, and, and a whole range of others. So, At the beginning of last year, we had seven companies across Australia and New Zealand producing these products and selling them to market. Now there are 22 plant-based meat companies, uh, Australia and New Zealand plant-based meat companies uh, selling into the market. And so that's really exciting because that means local production, that means higher demand for Australian grown and processed plant proteins, which means opportunities for farmers um, as that supply chain builds out. So it's not just uh, all sort of doom and gloom for the farmers. This is there's very much a, a, an upside here. We have tens of thousands of Aussie farmers that produce crops and horticultural products, um, including millions of tonnes of legumes and pulses, uh, which could be value-added 
for industries such as this. They traditionally haven't been. They just end up in the global commodity market and don't command a premium, which they they should be grown in Australia by Australian farmers. But but these sorts of industries provide uh, new supply chains um, for those agricultural products, which is really exciting. I get the feeling on those statistics that you mentioned before around 35%, I think you said, of 32. Pe- 32% yeah. of, of people who are, you know, they're not, they're not vegetarian or vegan, but they're considerably reducing their meat consumption. I get the feeling when when that starts to just increase a little bit more, there will be a tipping point where these plant-based meat alternatives, which in some ways are, are still considered to be a bit of a fringe product for some people in some groups, I get the feeling that that will tip and they will just become a normal part of the protein offering in supermarkets. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, we're seeing that in markets that are further ahead than ours in other parts of the world where you walk into a restaurant chain and you've got choose your protein, you know, and sure, you've got chicken and beef and pork, but you've also got a plant-based meat and you might have a whole foods plant-based option, you know, tofu with tempeh or lentils. Um and that's where we need to be headed. We need a more diversified protein supply to feed the world within planetary boundaries and without risking public health um, to the extent that we that we have been. And um, these sorts of products offer an easy option for those that are still wanting the convenience and the familiarity and the taste and, and, and the nutrition of, of meat, um, but in a plant-based format. Okay, so that's the sort of plant-based meat side. Is there anything else we need to cover off on before we jump over to cellular agriculture in terms of things that have changed or perhaps what's to come for that space? Our economic um, modelling piece with Deloitte last year found that uh, under a moderate growth scenario, this this sector is expected to be worth almost $3 billion in consumer spend by 2030. So that equates to about 6,000 full-time jobs in Australia across the supply chain. Um, and also considerable exports. And that's really another frontier for Australian uh, meat alternatives and plant proteins is just like with our other food and agricultural products, we can be exporting this stuff and leveraging the um, strong brand uh, of Australian made food as being trusted and high quality and, and, and safe. Yeah, that's, that's going to be very exciting to see that. I mean, as you say, we currently supply so many healthy foods and supplements and things like that to the likes of China where meat consumption would be growing, I assume, as they're just as they're becoming more and more developed. Affluent. Yeah. Um, so that's, you know, in and of itself represents such a huge opportunity for this country. Speaking of opportunity, I suspect cellular agriculture is just another great opportunity in this space. We spoke about it on the last episode. I think plant-based meat is a little bit easier for for people to just understand straight away. It's taking plant materials and formulating them in a way that mimics the taste and the texture of of meat and and most people have tried that. But cellular agriculture can be, at this stage, a little bit more foreign to, to sort of get a grip on. Let's maybe just start by defining some terms what cellular agriculture is in the first place and then we can sort of jump into what's changed over the last couple of years. Yeah, so it's in some ways it's a similar approach to the plant-based space in the problem it's trying to solve in that if we can offer people the foods they know and love 
but without having to rely on industrial animal agriculture as the model of production, we can solve a whole bunch of problems in a short period of time. So cellular agriculture, instead of using plants to uh, replicate the experience of meat, it's about producing actual meat and other animal products, but by feeding cells nutrients. Meat's just a combination of cells, uh, and those cells can be grown on the skeletal system of an animal like we currently do. Um, that process is quite resource intensive. It presents public health risks. Some people are concerned about the welfare of, of the animals in those systems. Uh, or you could actually feed a small sample of the same cells at nutrients directly and allow that process to take place without the need to breed, feed, raise and slaughter billions of animals. And so that's the, the, the sort of the theory behind um, cellular agriculture or the approach. And it started uh, in sort of early 2000s. The concept was initially being explored by NASA as a way to feed astronauts on, uh, you know, in space. And they, they didn't move ahead with it. Um, but then in 2013, I think it was, um, the fir- world's first ever hamburger made from cell culture was uh, shown at a, at a London press conference by a, prof- a professor from the Netherlands called Mark Post. Is that also the world's most expensive hamburger? Yeah, the headlines were like the $300,000 burger. And, um, <laughs> all the, all the, uh, the research and development costs that they yes, added up in, to go into that, yeah. Right. Just like the first iPhone was... <laughs> the first anything. A billion was, bucks, yeah. yeah. Um, and so that was 2013. And then 2015 was when the world's first ever commercial venture in this space was established called Memphis Meats, which is the one, of the, one of the leaders uh, in this space based in America. Since then, globally, just in the last five years, we've now seen... I think about 55 to 60 companies based on my last count uh, pop up that are using cellular agriculture technology to produce animal products without animals. And so um, those range from companies cultivating meat from cells to fermenting dairy proteins rather than needing an udder <laughs> to do that um, to products like leather and collagen, um, which can be produced with similar technology. I just want to clarify something on NASA. So what was the idea there? This was food for the astronauts while they were in the spaceship. Were they wanting to take cellular or cultured meat that had been grown down here on Earth up there or wanting to actually grow it up there? Um, my understanding is they wanted to actually produce it up there. Okay. Yeah, I could be wrong about that. Maybe well, that kind of makes sense. Well, yeah, I mean, you can't really take a cow to space. Yeah. Um, well, that makes sense, yeah. They, they, they couldn't take enough food, so they wanted to grow meat up there. Yeah. Yeah, or, or, or in the space station, you know. Yeah. Okay, yeah. I get it. That's cool. And when that first burger came out in 2013, you've probably read up on, on this a lot. I, I say now that, that people hear cellular agriculture and think it's foreign, I imagine seven years ago that it was even more foreign. How did, how did people react in, in 2013 to this idea that you can grow meat, often described as, in the laboratory? I think it's still a very new concept to the vast majority of people. Um, most people don't really know about this or they've sort of heard about it, you know, through, through, through media stories. And the concept is pretty new and novel. Um, and for a lot of people, it sounds like science fiction. Uh, but 
in understanding the pace of technological advancement and the urgency of solving systemic global challenges. Um, it, it is one of the highest impact technologies that I've ever come across uh, to transform uh, you know, the, the, the way that we eat. And so it sounds a bit strange to some people, but really it's the same product. It's just produced um, in what will look like a brewery once it's scaled, sort of tall steel tanks, not not an, a laboratory. Um, food production facility like a yeah. lot of the food that ends up on yeah, our plate. Yeah, absolutely. And some of the benefits are that because it's in that sort of controlled, clean environment, you don't have the same risk of bacterial contamination for example, um, E. coli and salmonella and those sorts of things that can end up contaminating meat that come from an animal's intestinal tract. And obviously some of the, the, the systemic benefits like you know, not having to farm animals intensively and therefore not have the same risk of zoonotic disease, you know, pandemics. And nutritionally, there's scope to optimise these foods so that you can uh, produce a piece of meat, for example, that has a nutritional profile that's suited to an individual's needs. Um, could have less saturated fat and more omega-3 fatty acids. I think that's the really exciting aspect of this for me, other than the fact that this represents a huge opportunity to solve so many world issues uh, beyond the sort of direct human health. But from a direct human health perspective, the ability to sort of provide the same experience and taste but perhaps be able to change some of the nutritional offering because you can control the inputs that are going into those cells is is huge. And we can use a lot of what we've learned from science on what nutrients are health promoting and what are the ones that perhaps we want to reduce our exposure to and really biomimic meat in a way that is just a win-win-win for everyone. Yeah. So it's a world of opportunity. And Australia is really well placed to capitalize on it with the expertise we have in the fields of science and food production that are needed to advance the field of cellular agriculture. So I've seen a growth in the number of companies. There's, there's six now uh, in Australia, up from three about a year ago. Can you name them? We have Vow, Huros, Change Foods, Magic Valley, Cass Materials and Nourish. Okay. Well, that's good because now we can we can keep an eye on them. It's always good to, to watch the the local Australian startups. Yeah, absolutely. We're, we're actually um, going to be producing over the coming months some directories on our website at, at foodfrontier.org that give people that snapshot of the landscape, the who's who, both in plant-based uh, meat and in cellular agriculture. Very good. And there's quite a, a range of approaches they're taking. So some are cultivating meat from cells. Some are trying to champion one component of that process. For example, the nutrient feed that the cells need or the scaffold to support their growth into a certain three-dimensional structure. So just to clarify for anyone who has come across this for the first time and thinks this is a, a very strange idea, uh, creating meat from cells or creating dairy through fermentation, this is is not a matter of maybe. It's it's more when is this going to become available in Australia? And and I think, I mean, it's very timely. I think it was like two days ago. I was reading about Singapore and some changes in legislation there. Am I am I right in thinking that this is? It's, it's coming and we'll see products like these on the shelf in the, in the next 
two, three, four, five years. Yeah, the announcement from Singapore was a was a massive uh, step forward for cellular agriculture globally, being the first approval for sale of cultivated meat uh, anywhere in the world, a chicken product produced by a company called Just out of America. And so that's been long awaited. There's been lots of conversation in recent years about who's going to be first, which market's going to be first, and when's it going to happen. So now that that's happened, it sort of opens the door for other markets to achieve similar progress from a regulatory standpoint. And so it's basically finding a, a, a way to regulate an industry that is producing a product that is anatomically identical to what people are already eating, you know, most people every day, but a very different process. Um, a process and a technology that has been used in the medical field for quite a long time, so tissue engineering and stem cell biology, um, but being applied to food, which has never been done before. And so for Australia and New Zealand, you know, we at Food Frontier have engaged with the regulator here for the last couple of years to, to um, begin this conversation and understand what a path to market might look like for our jurisdiction and uh, have been supporting uh, one of Australia's cellular ag companies to make the first draft submission to them to start getting the ball rolling. So the, the sort of idea is that even though it is the same end product, same type of end product, because that process is different, you can't just go in and, and start a company and sell into Woolworths or Coles right now, various legislation has to change. Yeah, you've got to have a way to regulate um, that industry like any new or novel industry, particularly in food. You know, when you're talking about a product people are putting in their bodies, um, you want to make sure that it's it's safe and secure and that supply chain is um, is is regulated. And so it's you know, hats off to Singapore for figuring that out and being the first. And they've had a lot of political will to get that done because Cellular agriculture is a big part of their 2030 um, food uh, plan that they have in order to address sustainability challenges and food security challenges. Um, they've put considerable investment dollars, the government, into attracting uh, this kind of innovation to Singapore. And we could be doing the same in Australia. Um, the opportunity is, is, is ripe for the picking um, and it's great that they're leading the way and, and other countries can look to them as an example. Yeah, let's hope that they're the first domino to, to fall and, 100%. and we see a ripple effect. Do you feel that Australia is in a position to be quite progressive and quick to, to respond in terms of changing legislation or will it be a little bit like CBD where we were, you know, some, somewhat behind the many parts of the world in, in sort of changing legislation to allow that industry? Yeah, look, as you point out, we haven't always been the first mover in these sorts of spaces, um, but we're not the last either. And so the fact that Singapore's done it, the fact that the in the US, the FDA and the USDA are making progress towards um, a, a path to market for cell ag products over there is um, hugely promising because then our regulator can look to those markets to understand how they've done it and potentially model um, our uh, regulatory regime on that. What we currently consider alternative proteins will constitute a significant part of the future of food. We know that. Exactly what it'll look like and when it'll all happen, you know, no one has a crystal ball. So the question for Australia is not whether this is going to happen, it's to what extent do we want to be part of it. And that is really our message when we engage with and support uh, both businesses and government in particular. 
um, because we have the strengths to, to leverage to be a world leader in these spaces alongside the food and ag sectors that we're already known for. But it requires that that will and that appetite and that forward thinking to understand that, um, you know, if we want to claim our piece of the pie in this fast-growing multi-billion dollar industry, um, we need to be investing now. We spoke earlier about sort of resistance from conventional agriculture producers with regards to plant-based meat. Is the conversation a little bit different with cellular agriculture and do you foresee greater resistance from, for example, the beef industry in terms of resisting change and, and, and sort of opposing changes to legislation that would allow cultivated beef to be sold in, say, Woolworths or Coles? I really hope not. <laughs> As I mentioned earlier, we have an enormous challenge ahead of us globally in the amount of protein we need to be producing to feed an increasing population and an increasingly meat-hungry population. And that means we need diversification. We need new ways to meet that demand that are less resource-intensive and, and present fewer risks. And so for you know, my lifetime, these sorts of industries should be complementary to and working alongside traditional protein sectors and shouldn't necessarily be viewed as, as, as direct competition. Those players within the meat industry globally that are forward-thinking, that do understand where the world is heading, are investing in this stuff. So the biggest meat producers in America, for example, JBS, Tyson, Cargill, have all invested in alternative proteins. Now, whether that's uh, investing in plant-based meat ventures, whether that's investing in cellular agriculture ventures, or releasing their own plant-based product lines, as some of them are now doing, they understand that that they need to reposition themselves as protein producers, not livestock producers, and that that diversification is a good thing from a business standpoint. So it, it's sort of different when you talk at, at that corporate level compared to the industry association level, um, those organizations that represent primary producers, which, yeah, sometimes there's resistance and there's, there's questions raised. Um, but again, I think we need to take a more holistic view and understand the, the need for these technologies, the opportunities they present. You know, whilst cellular agriculture takes food production off the land to a large degree, you still need a nutrient source for that feed that goes to the cells. And so there'll be some level of cropping still involved in, in producing that product. So here in, in Australia, I'm, I'm sort of wondering, and I think you might have to get your crystal ball out here, but is it just legislation that stands in the way of these products being available here for consumers or are there other barriers that also need to be sort of leapt over in order to, to see this industry begin and start to thrive here? I mean, whether it's in Australia or globally, the next evolution uh, for this sector is scaling of production. So a lot of these companies have been able to produce, you know, what you might call prototypes, some pork sausages or fish croquettes or chicken nuggets to say, hey, we can do it. Um, but that's at a, 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 a fairly small scale. You know, it's enough to feed a bunch of journalists at a press conference. You watched um, uh, Meet the Future, yeah? 
the documentary? Yeah, I um I spoke on a panel at the Environmental Film Festival of Australia and that was the film they they showed at the opening. Yeah, I think if anyone's looking for a little bit of extra sort of background context to what we're talking about here, that provides a, a nice sort of visual for it for sure. Yes, yeah, and and and, and tracks the story of Umar Valetti, the Memphis Meats founder, former cardiologist. Um, fascinating guy. Um, yeah, it, it, we're, we're taking a technology that's traditionally been used in a medical setting and applying it to food. And that requires breaking down of silos and, and industries and expertise that have never worked together before. So in order to produce cultivated meat on scale in that brewery-like facility we described earlier, you need engineers, you need people from medicine and pharmaceuticals who understand these sorts of setups and the science behind how to do this. And uh, that requires enormous investment. Uh, it requires a cross-disciplinary approach. And, you know, governments are in a good position to incentivize that if they, if they want to be leaders in the space. And, and you can see why this sort of, sort of technology is appealing to a country like Singapore that have next to no land to raise <laughs> animals on. But the idea of producing meat in a far more efficient way uh, in these sorts of facilities is, it just presents a world of opportunity. Mm, and, and in a world where there's so much food insecurity right. as well, that, you know, this, this is, is certainly a big part of solving the hunger that we see around the world, not the only thing. It's a very complex issue. Um, but if we can produce more calories from less land, that's, that's going to be a great step forward. 100%. And there are some examples of where we're using uh, this technology already uh, particularly the precision fermentation stuff, so what's being done with dairy proteins um, in, say, the production of insulin that used to come from pigs but now is produced in a, you know, cultivated tank. Which is, I guess, is that the similar sort of technology that, that Change Foods is using? Similar kind of field, yeah. Similar, similar field. Similar field. Um, you're, you're best asking Dave Booker. Yeah, yeah I spoke to, <laughs> to, to David this morning. Uh, you introduced us, so thank you for that. No worries. Um, he's the CEO and founder of Change Foods, is that yeah. right? Yeah. Yeah, they're doing great things. He, I've kept in touch with him over the last year or so and and. He's been keeping me in the loop with their progress and said today they've successfully raised some, some more funds and been able with those funds to hire some key talent from you know, big multinational companies like Danone who are very experienced in the dairy yeah. space. So very exciting. He, he seems optimistic that they'll have products in, in the American market, I think, first mm-hmm. in, in the next two to three years. So Yeah. The, the momentum is incredibly exciting. I visited Vow here in Sydney yesterday. They've got a new location, this beautiful big building that they're setting up um, for their production. They're, all, they're cultivating meat. And um, it, it, it's, it's, yeah. What kind of meat are they cultivating? Because I, I met it with those guys as well. And yeah. I mean, it's a very interesting company because they're not, they're not or when I was speaking to them, they're, their initial sort of entry into the market wasn't about, you know, biomimicking the most common meats found. Right. They're looking at uh, new and novel culinary experiences. Um, so this this is fascinating. This <laughs> this is sort of an, another frontier um, <laughs> that will blow people's minds. Yeah. The the I mean, you can you can cultivate whatever cells you want, um, and so whether that's 
blending uh, different types of meat, you know, to to, to create a, um, a a different sensory experience in the product um, that hasn't been able to be achieved before, or whether it's cultivating more sort of <laughs> exotic cells. Um, but you know, the, at their initial showcase, they had pork and kangaroo. Okay, and and how are they coming along from a, a sort of research and development and and product creation point of view they're moving pretty quickly yeah this um the the new facility that they've locked down um will enable them to really dial things up they've grown their team this year they've taken on uh more investment as well so it's um a great example of uh, australian innovation and entrepreneurship and an example of what you know um is more, more to come Absolutely. So a lot of these startups here in, in Australia, Food Frontier, you work very closely with. Do they sort of come to you as the body that guides them in terms of legislation and, and helping them navigate their entry into the market? Yeah. So as I said, we're, we're a think tank and expert advisor on both plant proteins and cellular agriculture. And there's sort of three main areas we focus on or programs. The first is thought leadership. So that's our research, our data, our insights, our reports, the media engagement, the presentations at industry conferences. It's all about it illuminating the opportunities. And then the uh, industry support and the advising of policymakers are the other two areas, which is really about helping those stakeholders to navigate and, and pursue those opportunities. So it's a lot of education. It's a lot of facilitation, making connections for people. Um, so on the industry side, we run roundtables with all of the startups we've been talking about twice a year, get them together, talk about common challenges, concerns, opportunities, and then try and lead actions coming out of those discussions and sometimes run focus groups to deep dive on particular topics like export opportunities, for example. Then, you know, further sort of downstream, we'll work with the retailers, Coles and Woolworths, and understand where they're at and what, you know, they're facing and, and really translate insights and, and uh, messages across that supply chain. Um, and then on the policy side, it's, it's the government engagement, regulatory and agricultural industry groups. Um, and it's really exciting. We now have a, a established, uh, highly capable team to lead this work. There's six of us at Food Frontier now, including former head of science and innovation from Marks and Spencer, the leading UK grocery retailer, and um, you know people who have worked in the pork industry before, um, the the government. And uh, yeah, I'm I'm really proud of where we've got to. We're not for profit, so we're funded entirely by donations and philanthropy, which allows us to be independent and really hone in on what's highest impact. So if anyone wants to support us as listening, um, we're always very, very I welcoming. I will make sure I put that into the show notes. I mean, as I said at the start, the, the quality of the information that you're putting out, which is only a small part of what you guys do, is absolutely incredible. So Thank you. keep those reports up. I find them very, very informative. Well, the next one's coming in about March of next year. And what's that? Is that the, like a, a recap of the last year or? Yeah, it's a follow-on from that economic piece we did with Deloitte in 2019. So it'll tell the story of how the sector uh, commercially has grown since then, both in sort of money terms, but also the key trends and insights we're seeing in terms of the kinds of products, the kinds of companies. Uh, so yeah, keep an eye out. Tell me, I mean, those reports... They would be great for people in Australia, investors in Australia who are looking at diversifying and and investing into this sector. Overall, it seems like a lot of the investment into this space 
comes from America or Singapore or I think maybe Israel, places like that. What's the the sort of appetite, the mindset of the Australian investor into this space? Yeah, it's been a process of education first and foremost. So Food Frontier has been around for three and a half years now. And when I was sitting down with some of Australia's biggest VCs, for example, back then, um, they'd sort of heard about this stuff, you know, news coming out of Silicon Valley and that sort of thing. But there wasn't much understanding of um, exactly what the opportunity is and and where they might invest and 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 just few ventures to invest in. Now we actually have an industry, which is really exciting. And, and those companies, some of them have found it uh, more difficult to source capital locally and have relied on some of those um, international sources that you mentioned. But we are seeing more and more Australian uh, investors and and VCs uh, getting behind this space. Obviously, everyone has their you know, preferences. For, for some, a field like cellular agriculture is, is far too early stage and there's too many unknowns. For others, that really excites them and it's something they want to get on board with. So it's, a, it's, it's growing overall. Mm, I guess the, the sort of legislation piece is a big one because that very much is going to be what dictates entry into the market. I mean, everything else that you're talking about in terms of scaling and whatnot is very important, but ultimately if you can't sell it, then you have a a great product that can't be sold into the Australian market. So that will be something I think if that was to change or that conversation was to start to pick up speed, I think that appetite would pick up a lot. Well, you touch on a really important point, Simon, which is that if we don't make progress on the regulatory front, we'll end up losing startups who'll go overseas. And we won't build and foster a local industry and we'll lose that economic opportunity, that innovation opportunity. Already we've you know, had conversations with some startups here who have acknowledged the appeal of moving, uprooting and moving to somewhere like Berkeley in the US, which is probably the global epicenter for this space. You know, when you've got your colleagues across the road who are trying to solve the exact same problems, um, it's a hugely, and just access to deal flow, like you wouldn't believe, it's a hugely appealing prospect. So how does Australia ensure that we're not losing industry? Um, and and not only that, that we're actually incentivizing and attracting more companies and more scientists uh, and entrepreneurs into the space. Yeah, I think it's a space over the next two or three years from an investment point of view that is going to attract a lot of interest. I mean, if, if Memphis Meats was to, to list or something on the, on, the, on the stock exchange in America, um, that would be a very appealing or very attractive offering for a lot of people. Well, you saw what happened with Beyond Meat. Uh, that was yeah. huge. The biggest first day market pop since the turn of the century in the US, like just huge. Before we close this one out, you mentioned before the conversations with the likes of Coles and Woolworths and also the success of the plant-based meat, the, uh, what was the name of that first product? The Funky. Funky Fields. Right, the success of that. And that very much sort of caught everyone's attention and, and all of a sudden the amount of shelf space increased in, in all the major stores and we saw, you know, a lot of new companies coming into the space and, and a lot of existing companies starting to make plant-based products. Where's the conversation out with the likes of Coles and Woolies with cellular agriculture? Is that something that they're even thinking about this early? Yeah, I don't know if there's much of a conversation yet. Um, obviously, a, a, an industry like that, which is still in the R&D phase and is years from 
being produced at any kind of commercial scale. You know, it's something that they're aware of um, and I'm sure that they'll be open to those conversations when the industry is at a point to be selling in the market. Um, But at the end of the day, big business is going to respond to whatever consumers want. And uh, it's very clear that a large portion of the population are cognizant of the impacts of their level of meat consumption and are wanting to change that. And that's why we've seen that growth in plant-based foods and will continue uh, to see growth. And so if cellular agriculture can be effective in appealing to those same motivators and telling a story of their product and how it's made that doesn't generate fear in people, acknowledging that that happened with a field like genetic modification, which is, you know, different um, but but has parallels, um, I think this could be a hugely successful industry. And I guess a big part of success will ultimately, you spoke about before, flavour is going to be key. Taste, price, convenience. Price is something that we haven't spoken about. And sometimes plant-based alternatives can be more expensive. Mm -hmm. And we spoke earlier about the, the first hamburger cellular agriculture, which clearly was the result of years and years of, of research and development. But it may be something people are thinking about is are these products going to be accessible to everyone, to to the mainstream, or are they going to be priced at a point where only a certain fraction of society can actually afford to buy them on an ongoing basis? Theoretically, they should be cheaper eventually. Um, as with any industry, it's about scale of production, uh, economies of scale. And so you know, the process of producing meat currently is hugely resource intensive and expensive. And you could argue that the end cost to the consumer is artificially low. Um, And the only reason that it is so affordable is the scale in which it's done. Um, In a lot of cases, the intensity, you know, the most common meats we consume, um, which by uh, far the most intensively farmed still. Um, And so if you take the animals out of that equation and are able to produce meat on scale by feeding nutrients directly to cells with fewer resources, that should be cheaper. There will be a point, I believe, in which the price point falls below conventional meat. Um, And and that'll be game-changing, I I think. Uh, Until then, just like with plant-based, which also will continue to fall in cost, it's a matter of a portion of the population being willing to pay a premium because it satisfies other priorities that they have, whether it's around their health or sustainability or ethics. The efficiency in terms of input and output, and Bruce spoke about this, mm. I think he mentioned with with a cow, you feed in 100 calories and you get three calories out the other side. And I think a chicken was was feeding 100 calories and get 12 calories out the other side. So just there you can see how inefficient that process is and that's a result of so many calories going into that animal that you don't get out the other side. Yeah, absolutely. And and in some instances that could be byproduct that you're feeding them or things, you know, food that, that, that isn't suitable for human consumption. But in a lot of instances it's perfectly fine <laughs> food, you know, high quality grain that, um, that could be used for other means. And so this is what we mean 
at Food Frontier when we talk about diversification and really balancing out um, food production. It's about how do we reduce reliance on those systems that are resource intensive and, and, and causing a range of challenges um, and added new options into the mix. Uh, and, and they can complement one another. Very good. To round this one off, what's, what's the next year looking like for Food Frontier? What's on the horizon and what would you like to see happen in the in the industry? Oh gosh, you're expecting this to be a brief response. <laughs> you can you can have as long as you want. <laughs> oh look, it's uh, we've got lots of exciting things planned. We're actually just rounding out our strategic planning process as a team at the moment, um, and uh, and seeking some additional you know financial support on the philanthropic side to to really action those different project opportunities. Uh, like I said, we've got an, an, a report coming out in uh, around March which will be really exciting um, and a range of other work with industry and, and, and government and the like. Uh, in terms of the broader sector, uh, I think we'll continue to see uh, growth, but, but evolution in, the, in what's already on shelves in terms of improving offerings to ensure that the, the plant-based options that are being put in front of consumers are genuinely satisfying their desires because you know, I'll be the first to admit there are some options that have hit shelves which aren't great in the last couple of years. And, and that's partly a rush to fill the category and, 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 you know, retailers wanting a local supplier who may not have a lot of experience making these foods, but now they do. And now that there's more cross-pollination and, and exchanging of ideas and, um, and, uh, and innovation being pursued, I think we'll see the quality of products improving. I think we'll see the nutrition of products improving. Some of them you know, still aren't offering things like B12 and uh, iron and these sort of key nutrients that if someone is, is replacing it, uh, you know, may be missing. And so, yeah, Im- improvement um, and advancement within the plant-based category and then continued uh, growth within cellular agriculture as well. Again, we're really hopeful that the companies that are here will stay here and that more will enter the space and that we'll see the first full uh, application be made at the regulatory level to get really get progress happening in terms of a path to market in Australia and New Zealand. So, uh, yeah, I'm, I'm really excited about what's ahead. Awesome. Well, thank you for coming back and doing round two. Always good to, to get an update. I just realised it must feel a little bit weird for you actually doing this in person. Oh, it's great. Yeah. It's great. I, um, it's one of the first conversations I've had face-to-face in many months. Uh, so, yeah, it's great to chat with you, not through a Zoom window. Yeah, for, for a bit of context, uh, you've come up from Canberra, but you spent the better part of six months in lockdown down in Melbourne. Yeah, yeah, I'm based in Melbourne and, and uh, we had two uh, consecutive lockdowns that, that yeah, we're pretty rough, but um, really grateful to be in a country that's been able to get the pandemic sort of under control. And um, yeah, for Victoria to have had no cases, I think for now over a month. Yeah, seems to have turned the corner. So yeah, let's hope that it's only only up from here. Hundred percent. All right. Well, let's do this again. Yeah, look forward to round three and uh, enjoy dinner tonight at Eden. <laughs> Will do. Thanks, Simon. There we go, friends. Very interesting to hear about what really is just the infancy of a new part of our food system that stands to see such incredible growth in the coming decades. I really do think humans are going to look back in just 20 to 30 years' time, 
perhaps even sooner, perhaps 10, 20 years, which isn't a long time given how long we've been around, how long we've existed as a species, and shake their head in disbelief at the way we were doing things, the way we were going about business at the expense of our environment. Of course, I'm sure we will unknowingly make more mistakes along the way, but each of them will hopefully lead us closer and closer to a greener, healthier future that is fairer for all humans and kinder to all life on the planet and the planet itself. If you would like to continue the conversation to connect with Thomas, you can find his details in the show notes. I'm sure that he would love to hear from you. I've also put a link to the Food Frontier Reports, which I highly recommend downloading. They're really, really informative. Final thing before we wind this one up and I let you go, I know your time is precious, please go to plantproof.com forward slash book if you haven't already and register your email to learn when my book is being released and also to get access to a bunch of completely free PDF guides that I've been creating to release with the book. That's plantproof.com forward slash book. Okay, that's all for today. Thanks for hanging out with me. I appreciate you. Catch you in the next episode.